This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, August 13th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Mark Haxo. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. My name is Mark. I'm one of the elders. It's my privilege to preach to you a passage, uh, one of the best passages in the Bible, I think. Um, it's actually a passage that could probably be broken into about a dozen different sermons, and I'm going to do it all in one. And uh, so if you wonder why I didn't spend more time in one particular pass- part of this eight-verse passage, it's because I didn't have time. Um, I would love to. Uh, it would be great. But nonetheless, um, you know, uh, the rain has come back. That's kind of a good thing. Uh, we've gone for almost two months without any rain. And when I woke up this morning, I seen the rain was here. Uh, boy, that... I don't know if I've ever been thankful to see rain, but I was this morning. My yard sure needs it, and so do all the plants and all the trees outside. I mean, they're all crying for rain. So thank you, Lord, for the rain that you give us this morning. And um, anyway, last week's sermon from the third chapter of 2 Timothy at the end really sets the foundation for today's sermon um, because we're going to be talking a lot about the Word of God again. If you were here last week, you heard Andrew teach on the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures and how the Holy Bible came to be and why it is that we can believe it to be both infallible and inerrant. And uh, that we can trust what it says and believe that it is from God Himself, even though it was written over many, many years' time by many different authors. That They, they all spoke in their own language, in their own way, but it was all inspired by God so that we have what we have today uh, contained in the Holy Bible. So we are continuing our, <clears throat> our uh, time uh, in 2 Timothy. And, um, you know, like all faithful Christian churches, we preach from the Bible, from the Word of God. And, uh, you know, taking what we learned last week, we really believe this is God's Word. And so uh, normally we go through books of the Bible, and sometimes we go through really long ones. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that we just finished Genesis I don't know, sometime last year, and that took like a whole year to go through. Before that, we went through Matthew, and that took like another whole year to go through. Uh, But sometimes we'll throw in a small book like this, 2 Timothy. So this is our gift to you this summer. 2 Timothy, it's only taking us, you know, a summer to go through, and we only have one sermon after this to, um, to go through this book. So this is the second to the last one, but it is a very good one. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of them right outside, right through that door as you go down the steps, before you go down the steps on the top of the landing there. You can have one of those. Take it for yourself if you don't have one. So let's see. This, this passage that we're about to read is, is a little bit, well, in fact, this whole book of 2 Timothy is actually a little different than a lot of Paul's letters because in this letter, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time discussing doctrine and theology as he does in some of his other books like, or letters, like, for example, the Epistle to the Romans is uh, Paul's greatest theological treatise, and it really, in those 16 chapters, contains about everything that we know about Christianity or need to know about Christianity. If you could only choose one book from the Bible that teaches you the most about what the Christian faith is, I would say the, go- the, the not the Gospel of Romans, but the letter or epistle of Paul to the Romans would be um, a, a good choice because there's a lot there for us. But this letter, it's, it's really a personal letter that Paul writes to Timothy his co-worker, his good friend. And now as Paul is in prison, 
Um, he's, he's writing this last letter. He knows this is his last letter. He knows his days are numbered. Uh, perhaps even his hours are numbered. And so when he writes this letter, he begins even this, uh, this chapter, I think, with, with this in mind, that this is, these are my final words to my good friend Timothy. And so um, this whole book of 2 Timothy is really, really good for churches. It's good for pastors. It's good for leaders. But it's really good for all Christians who desire to know the heart of God and who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Because this is Paul's heart to Timothy. And uh, so what does he tell him? Very first thing, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Timothy is a pastor. He's pastoring a church in Ephesus. And these are words that he dearly needs to hear. So Paul begins by giving him a special charge. And he elevates the importance of this charge by invoking the witness of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. By this we know that what he's about to say is of extreme importance. The reality of his plight is so clear to him now. And that, so that with extreme clarity he gives to Timothy the most important direction he can possibly think of. Preach the Word. Paul believes after having experienced life as a, a missionary, after being called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles, after having planted many churches throughout the region, traveling throughout the Mediterranean region, um, preaching to people, seeing people converted, uh, planting churches and in, 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 uh, uh, putting elders into place, he knows where the real power of that comes from. And it comes from the Word. He believes that there is nothing more foundational to the calling of a preacher of the Gospel than the preaching of the Word of God. He knows that the real power to transform hearts and minds does not come from his own uh, skills. It doesn't come from his own uh, intellect. It doesn't come from his own ability to speak persuasively. It doesn't come from his own education. It doesn't come from anything other than the power of the Word of God uh, with the Holy Spirit. So, that is why he had just, in fact, written to uh, Timothy in the previous chapter. And we heard it last week, but it's so relevant and it's so important. I'm going to reread it. Beginning in verse 14, where he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It goes right along with what the writer to the Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4.12, where he said, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, the Word of God has such power that Peter believed and he taught and he wrote that it is what brings new life to a person. It is what brings new life to a, uh, a heart and a soul. Where he writes in 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. You were born again through the living Word. See, no one comes to faith without the Word of God being preached or being read. This was no secret to Isaiah either in the Old Testament where he has written in Isaiah 55.11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. And this is God's word that he's talking about. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's the kind of confidence that Paul has in the Word of God. That's the kind of confidence that you and I also need to have in the Word of God. Less in ourselves and more in His Word. Our knowledge of God and our very faith in the work of Christ for salvation is founded upon the words contained between the covers of your Bible. Without it, our knowledge of God would be very incomplete and insufficient. I hope that after last week's sermon, you have a fresher perspective and a greater appreciation for the uh, contents of the Bible. A lifetime of reading and studying, and you still won't deplete all of the treasures that can be mined from within it. Preach the Word, Paul says. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, he says, preach the Word when it's convenient and preach it when it's not convenient. Or preach it when it's easy, preach it when it's hard. Uh, preach it on happy days and preach it on sad days. Preach it when people are eager to hear it. And preach it when they're not so eager to hear it. Even when they resist it. God has a plan through His Word. And He says, I want you to be instant, as it says in other translations, be instant to preach the Word in season and out of season. Sometimes the preaching of the Word comes easily and we can see the fruit that is produced as a result. Imagine the joy that a preacher has when he's preaching the Word and people are responding and coming to faith and you can see that they are uh, uh, getting it. They're, they're, they're getting it and they're just, it's just soaking it in. Imagine the joy that comes to a preacher during times of great awakening when hundreds, perhaps thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ and enter into His kingdom. I think of Jonah and how he preached to the Ninevites to repent or face judgment from God. And even though he did it unwillingly and kind of grudgingly, you all know the story of Jonah, 
But when he finally did go to Nineveh and he preached to them, repent or face judgment, they repented, didn't they? They put on sackcloth and ashes from the king down to the lowest subject in the land. And that is what happens sometimes when the word of God is preached. People respond. I think of Peter in Acts chapter 2 after preaching a fiery sermon on the day of Pentecost ushered in about 3,000 souls into the kingdom of Christ. I think about the preaching during the time of Reformation in the 16th century which brought clarity to so many people who were confused about Christianity because of the unbiblical teachings of the Catholic Church. Many people were given clarity and many people uh, became saved during that time as they were told about the uh, gospel of the kingdom wherein we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God. I think about the preachers of the gospel here in early America during our colonial times, like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, who, whose preaching sparked revival where many thousands were converted. I think about Billy Graham, who for nearly 60 years has faithfully proclaimed the Word of God and packed out tents and coliseums throughout America and throughout the world, bringing many thousands to an understanding of the victory that Christ has won over sin at the cross and about salvation through faith. I even think of our own Sam Ford who has labored for the past 10 years here in Snohomish and then before that in Marysville, never preaching to incredibly large crowds, but nonetheless preaching to those who need to hear the Word of God and there has been much fruit as a result of that and there have been many, many lives impacted. But you know, there are times when preaching seems difficult or it seems like it's out of season or inconvenient and even times when we are timid to share the Word of God with others. Those times when our flesh makes it difficult to boldly declare the truth as God has revealed it to us in His Word. Or even when the best of preaching fails to produce the radical changes that we like to see or expect to see when the Word of God is preached. I think about the hundred or so years that Noah preached to no avail to all of those around him as he built an ark, preaching to them that God is going to judge the world, that it was time to repent, to trust in God, to put away wickedness. And no one believed him. So when the rain came and the ark started to float and the doors were shut on the ark, only Noah and his wife, three sons and three daughters-in-law were aboard with all the animals. No one believed. I think about the times when uh, many of the prophets in the Old Testament uh, declared to Israel the message from God and the, and the people didn't want to hear it. So they were uh, beaten, they were whipped, they were sawn in two. Sometimes they were just killed in other ways. Uh, when the message of God was rejected. I think about <clears throat> the times that Jesus himself, who never failed to preach God's word, even as he was being led to his own death on the cross at Calvary, 
Yet sometimes even his preaching fell on deaf ears. Not everyone who heard the good news come from Jesus believed it. We know that. The Bible tells us that. Yes, sometimes Paul tells young Timothy that it seems like an inconvenient time to preach the word. Like perhaps it's not the right season, but yet, he says, be ready regardless because preaching the word always gives God glory. And it is through the word that lives are changed, that hearts are softened. But he goes on to say, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Paul knows that as a pastor, Timothy will be shepherding and discipling and ministering to people on varying scales of of maturity, uh, different kinds of backgrounds, all sorts of different types of, of, of people. And as Christians, we have been given, just as Christians the world over, have been given the glorious truth of the gospel. We have been given a, a knowledge of God that many people do not know. We have been given the Holy Spirit to live within us, to be our helper. Yet, it seems that we are often a fickle bunch of people. We're slow to learn. We are apt to give in to our weaknesses and make the same mistakes over and over again. That is why the Bible gives us a process for correction, a process for reconciliation. Paul speaks about it in other places. Jesus gave us a lesson on how to go about that. And that is why Paul is saying right now that even for Timothy, when we preach the Word of God, he says, we reprove, rebuke, and we exhort. Rebuking and reproving essentially just means that we, we show someone who is not living in line with the Gospel, who is not living in line with the Word of God, that they are in sin and that they should repent. Now, this isn't an easy exercise for, for anyone. Uh, it's, not, it's not easy for the rebuker, and it's not easy for the rebuke-e. Uh, very few of us relish the duty of meeting with a brother or sister in the Lord to show him or her uh, their fault. And uh, none of us relish being the one told that either. And uh, our own pride oftentimes gets in the way. But Jesus himself taught that at various times, and, and Paul gives us instruction here and elsewhere uh, to do the same. Uh, to exhort is just to strongly encourage someone to do something. Um, as a preacher, we exhort, uh, we, we exhort you to, to um, persevere, for example. Uh, Paul is telling Timothy that uh, as a pastor, you exhort those Ephesians to uh, maintain a close relationship with their father and with their Lord Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, Timothy, uh, exhort your people to love one another and to spur one another on uh, in good works. These are things which Paul is talking about when he says to exhort uh, the people of God. And that is something that not only pastors do, that is something that we do for one another and to one another. Much of this is done one-on-one, as the Bible says, that we are to one another, one another. Love one another, exhort one another, uh, pray for one another, um, lay hands on one another, and all of these. And so it gets done that way, but also gets done through the preaching of the Word. I'm convinced that as a preacher preaches the Word of God, the Holy Spirit takes that Word and oftentimes will bring conviction to a person's heart uh, 
Holy Spirit will exhort us to holiness uh, through the preaching, will comfort us in our distress, and will fill us with the hope of everlasting life. Paul continues, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul envisions a time when people will no longer tolerate sound biblical gospel teaching and preaching. This seems a little bit like the warnings that he has given elsewhere about false teachers and about how they will come in your midst and they will deceive people with their deceitful messages. Paul's telling Timothy, be careful, Timothy, that you consistently preach the Word of God accurately. If you begin to preach what you think the people want to hear, they will soon not tolerate sound teaching at all, but continue to demand more and more of what seems good to them. You see, sometimes, as Paul says, people have itching ears. They no longer want to hear uh, the truth as the Bible declares it. They no longer want to hear some of those harder truths that the Bible has. They want easy truth. They want that which makes them feel good about themselves. They want that which, which uh, scratches the tickle that they have in their, in their ears, essentially. Uh, not everything that the Bible has for us is always easy to hear. Because a lot of times what it does, it points to the, our own sin. It points to our own uh, inadequacy and need, ultimately, for Christ. It points to how we can't do it on our own and we need to trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope. How does we go from a church that preaches the gospel uh, clearly and preaches the Word of God uh, accurately to the best of their ability, rightly dividing the Word of Truth as Paul mentions earlier in this same book? Well, let me give you an example of how it works. A preacher may be faithfully preaching the Word of God for some time. Um, rebuking, reproving, exhorting with all patience and teaching. But occasionally there are those passages that he comes upon as he's going through uh, books of the Bible where he just doesn't quite understand it. There's a, there's a hard word in there that he just doesn't understand or perhaps he doesn't agree with, and so he kind of skips over that, kind of waters it down, doesn't really talk about it. And then there's those times when, so you know, that's a small compromise, right? He thinks it's not that big of a deal because, you know, in general, he's preaching what he considers to be the whole counsel of God. But then every once in a while when he is preaching on a subject, that doctrine that maybe somebody disagrees with, you know, he gets a few emails from people who, who, who want to take issue with how he preached a certain passage or a certain doctrine. And so after a while, these, these get to be difficult for him and he just thinks, you know what, it'll be easier if I just kind of soften my position on this We'll just kind of gloss over this, especially since the ones who you know, are complaining are, are faithful givers, they're, they're faithful servants within the church, and he really doesn't want them to, to leave the church on account of some of these things. And, and so he kind of softens it, makes another little compromise, and then, then there's, there's other people that do the same thing. And, and then, he, then, he's made, uh, you know, then he's mindful of the fact that you know, there are non-Christians that visit his church as well, and he wants to be sure that he doesn't offend anybody who might be seeking uh, Christianity or the truth. Um, and so eventually, 
his sermons get so watered down that he is no longer, uh, he's no longer exhorting, he's no longer uh, 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 reproving, he's no longer uh, rebuking, uh, he is no longer uh, convicting. His preaching no longer is convicting members of their sin, leading them to uh, examine themselves and, and go to the cross. He's exchanged patience for capitulation. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, pray that this never happens here. Pray that this never happens at Restoration Road Church. Pray that your pastors will always have the courage and the conviction to preach the whole counsel of God without compromise, no matter what the cost. Pray that first and foremost, our preaching will always be faithful to what God has revealed to us in his holy word. Be thankful when the preaching of the word leads you to examine your own heart and at times leads you to confess your own indwelling sin. This is how your own affection for God and your neighbor will grow. This is how your love for God will increase and, 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 and your estimation of yourself will decrease. In short, this is the effect of Christ-centered biblical preaching of the Word. I don't suggest that we do that perfectly. There's no church that does it perfectly. But our heart and our hope is to always be faithful in this way. Paul continues, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and, at, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, Paul is not afraid of death. It's interesting when you read this passage, Paul is not a fearful man when, it face, when facing certainty of, of death. The first time that he sat in a Roman prison, he penned his letter to the Philippians, and in that letter, he, he, he spoke of his desire to be with Christ, for that would be far better, but he felt uh, to remain would be more necessary on their account. So he wrote this. He said, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He seems to know that his end wasn't there yet. The end of his life was not yet there. But, but now it's a different story. As he's writing to Timothy, he knows that his end of his life is near. He says that he's already being poured out as a drink offering. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by a drink offering? Well, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant times, during the sacrificial system, as they prepared an offering to God, a burnt offering, they would oftentimes accompany this offering with, with uh, a glass of wine that they would either pour on the offering or pour on the ground near the offering as a way of, I suppose, sweetening the sacrifice to, to, to uh, give it an even more pleasing aroma to God. But ultimately, the sacrifice was in that, that, that rather than drinking that glass of wine for my own pleasure, I will pour it out as a sacrifice to God. Well, when Paul is talking about himself being poured out as a drink offering, he recognizes that his life is about to end. He knows, kind of, I think he has an idea of how it's going to end. 
he knows that it's not going to be through crucifixion because he's a Roman citizen. and Roman citizens were protected from that method of, of execution. So he knows that it's probably going to be by the edge of a sword, uh, probably a beheading. So he knows that before long, his lifeblood is going to be flowing out of him into the dirt of this earth. And that will be his final moment of life. But he is more than willing to, to do this as a sacrifice for Jesus. He's more than willing to offer himself in this way. But there's a sense in which Paul's entire life uh, was a drink offering to the Lord and was being poured out every moment of his life. Because, you see, Paul had given his life over completely to the service and the ministry to Jesus for the sake of the gospel. Um, he was a very willing uh, servant of Jesus. Uh, after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, he never looked back. His, he was single-mindedly devoted to that. So there's a sense in which all of us uh, have a cup of wine that we're pouring out for something or someone. We're either pouring the cup of wine as a drink offering uh, for our own selves, for our own lives, the things that we want, the pleasures of this world, or we're pouring it out for Jesus. So it's something that is actually, as we, we look at this and think about this, a good time for each of us to reflect upon how it is that we are, in fact, living our lives. Are we living our lives um, for ourselves? Are we living our lives um, just for certain things? Are we only giving a very small part of our life to Jesus and most of our life to our hobbies, to our jobs, to whatever it is? Certainly there's a, a delicate balance there, but it's good for each of us to examine ourselves in light of that. Paul knew his, his end was near. He knew he would be giving his life as a martyr for the gospel of Christ. He would be soon joining that elite company of saints who were willing to lay it all down for the gospel of Christ. He'd be joining the rest of the apostles who died as a result of their faith. There's an old saying. You've probably heard it. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As these holy men of God had their lives taken from them, by hands of violent men. The church continued to grow uh, in number and it continued to spread throughout the region. And even now we know that in areas of the world where Christians are being martyred for their faith, um, the church doesn't die out. The church grows. There's something about the message that is sent to those who don't know Jesus when people are willing to stand up and say, I will not renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. I will not renounce my Lord and Savior Jesus. There's a real sermon that gets preached there that doesn't get preached otherwise. <clears throat> and so in areas of the world where persecution is, of Christians uh, is taking place, where people are in fact being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ, the church continues to grow by leaps and by bounds. There's something about a testimony by someone who is unwilling to give up their faith in Jesus, uh, willing to face death as a result of that, that people say, that must be true. I know that people are willing to die for what they believe to be true. You've heard that saying too, but 
Why would someone be willing to die for that which they know is false? You see, these apostles and Paul himself, they had witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ, so they knew it was true. I mean, nothing could convince them otherwise. So that's why they were willing to lay down their life, because they had a faith that was uh, very, very strong at that moment. Paul does not speak of death in this passage. No, he rather speaks about his coming departure he, like he's about to cut loose of the anchor which has kept his ship docked at the bay. And he is about to embark on a long voyage across the sea to his heavenly kingdom to be with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No, his life is not about to end. I don't think Paul viewed his, this as, as an end of his life at all, but he, he, views it, he viewed it as the beginning. Uh, he, he, he viewed it, I think, as the, as the as a trans... Uh, uh, as a change from, from just an earthly existence to an eternal existence. <clears throat> he is supremely confident in where he is going. Supremely confident. He proclaims this testimony about his short life here on this earth. You know, he was a disciple of Christ. He was an apostle of the Lord. And as he is uh, making his exit from this earth, from this life, he says... I have finished, I have fought the good fight, he says. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's able to look back at his life, at the time that he had as a missionary to the Gentiles, as a planter of many, many churches, as a mentor to young Timothy, and not be ashamed. Paul's readiness to depart and be with Jesus suggests to us that he is not leaving anything undone here in this life. There's no loose ends for him to be, take, or to be taken care of after he dies. In fact, the writing of this letter to Timothy seems to be the last thing that he has on his to-do list. Naturally, this brings up a question about our own readiness to depart, doesn't it? Are you ready? Are you certain, or are there certain decisions or actions that, that you've put off until some later date because they're inconvenient right now? Obviously, the greatest decision that you could put off because it's inconvenient or because you don't want to do it is, is uh, bowing the knee to Jesus. It's, it's, it's getting right with God. It's, it's repenting of your sin and embracing Jesus Christ by faith. You know, there's some people who think, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I'm on my deathbed, for example, which is about the most foolish thing that you could do because you never know when you're going to be on your deathbed. You don't ever know when your life is going to end But are there lots of loose ends in your life that would be a mess for someone else to clean up if you were to depart today? You know, there's a couple of ways for us to consider this question of readiness. One is a spiritual way of looking at it, and the other is more of a temporal or earthly way of looking at it. Now, the first impacts your entire eternity. The other impacts the earthly lives of the ones that you leave behind. Obviously, being spiritually ready is of much greater importance, but that doesn't mean that the other is unimportant. So I just want to say a, a few words or on, uh, on this idea of being ready temporally or, or a kind of an earthly perspective of readiness. Um, not a bad readiness, but it's also a good readiness. It's just having kind of our, our whole uh, house in order before we die. I was reading an old Charles Spurgeon sermon um, 
He was a pastor in England in the 1800s, uh, very well-known, uh, incredible guy, one of the best preachers ever. Uh, but in this sermon, he was speaking of George Whitfield, who was also an amazing preacher from the 1700s, and he was an itinerant preacher, meaning he, he preached from town to town, from church to church. <clears throat> and uh, in the 1700s, around 1730, he came to America, and he ended up making seven trips, seven voyages across the ocean to colonial America to preach. And uh, together, uh, well, they were contemporaries, he and, and Jonathan Edwards. And um, if you know anything about that time, Jonathan Edwards and, and George Whitfield were both uh, prominent people behind the Great Awakening that took place between 1730 and about 1740 uh, in early America. <clears throat> Whitfield is said to have preached at least 18,000 sermons in his lifetime to over 10 million people. Imagine that. Here's a guy who was so committed to preaching that he oftentimes would preach several times a day. Uh, it's said that he never really prepared any sermon to preach. He just got up and preached. But he preached to large audiences. Crowds would come from miles away. He'd go to a little town and the, and the size of the town would you know, uh, be increased by tenfold. Sometimes he preached to crowds like 20,000 people in open fields. And of course, all of this was done without any sort of amplification because, of course, uh, Benjamin Franklin hadn't invented electricity yet. Actually, Benjamin Franklin was one of his uh, friends. Uh, and Benjamin Franklin one time, and who wasn't a Christian himself, uh, he was a so-called deist who believed that um, God was impersonal, that you couldn't get to know him personally or have a personal relationship with him. But Benjamin Franklin would oftentimes print his sermons in his newspaper. And, uh, and, and they would actually spend some time together. And he was amazed at the oratory, the skills that George Whitfield had uh, to be able to proclaim uh, the Word of God. And one time, Benjamin Franklin um, kind of did a little calculating based on a crowd that was present, about 20,000. And uh, he, he estimated that, that George Whitfield had the type of voice that he could speak to 30,000 people and everybody could actually hear him. That's the type of voice he had, but, but he used that voice to spread the gospel, to preach the word of God. And um, he is said to be one of Christianity's greatest preachers. And um, Spurgeon, who um, also one of the greatest uh, preachers in Christianity, said this of Whitfield in, 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 with regard to you know, readiness, overall readiness, kind of in a, in a temporal sense. He said he was so orderly and precise in his habits and so scrupulous and holy in his life that he used to say that he would not like to go to bed if there were a pair of gloves out of place in the house, much less were his will not made or any part of his duty unfulfilled to the best of his knowledge. He wished to have all right to be fully prepared for whatever else might happen so that if he never woke up from the slumbers of the night, nobody would have cause to reflect upon anything he had left undone. Entailing needless, entailing needless trouble on his wife or his children. Isn't that something? I'm not saying that we need to be as fastidious as Whitfield was. Uh, you know, if your gloves aren't in place, I mean, that's... But, you know, there's other things that are actually really important. Um, for example, writing a will. I mean, that's huge. Um, the effect that that has on those that you leave behind uh, cannot be underestimated. And there's all kinds of other things that as we age, as we get older... Uh, that we should be thinking about in terms of overall readiness 
to leave from this world to go to the next? How, what kind of a world are we leaving for those that we're leaving behind, especially our loved ones um, who, who will have to deal with the aftermath of our departure? So, uh, but more important is our spiritual readiness, isn't it? Um, you know, to ask the questions of yourself. Are you fighting the good fight as Paul did? Are you running the race as Paul ran? Are you keeping the faith that Paul kept? These are the questions of utmost importance that you must answer honestly this morning. Are you ready today if your departure came tonight? Do you look forward to eternity in the way that Paul did? Do you have an eternal perspective? Paul is so looking forward to the reward that was waiting for him. That's why he said, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also who have loved his appearance. Is appearing. There's no evidence of fear in Paul's heart. He's a man whose heart is filled with faith, which leaves no room for fear. He is, for the final time, living out what he had earlier testified to the Philippians, where he had said, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how it is to be brought low. I know how to abound in every... In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me. There's no doubt that as Paul faced the end of his earthly existence, that he was strengthened by Christ. Oh, that we could live our lives and even face our final departure from this earth with such courage and such eternal perspective. May I exhort you today that you too can have this kind of courage and faith this strong. Paul's hope of an eternal crown of righteousness is not only for him. No, it's, it's a gift uh, for any and all who, as he puts it, have loved his appearing. In other words, if you have love in your heart for the Lord Jesus, if you believe that he came in the flesh to live a perfect life that you could never live, if you believe that He died a sacrificial death on the cross for your sins and mine and was raised to new, newness of life on the third day, you too can have the same confidence as you live your life not knowing when your departure date will be, but being ready in the Lord to face it at any given moment. In closing, may I remind you how short our lives are in reality. If you're a 35 to 40-year-old adult, your life is about halfway over. Yeah, if you go on to live a normal-length life. I know that's uh, not easy to hear. I just turned 50 a couple of weeks ago, and I'm well on the downside, downside hill of life. You know, as I look back, I can hardly believe how quickly it has went. I can't believe that... Um, I've been married for almost 27 years. Uh, my parents both lived to be 78 years old. They died at different times, uh, several years apart, but they both lived to be 78. I don't know if that means I'm going to live to be 78. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But if I live to be 78, that means I only got 28 years left. That's about as long as I've been married, which doesn't seem that long, really. So... <clears throat> 
We don't know how long we're going to live. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I could get hit by a bus on my way out of here today, crossing the street. I need to be ready to depart at any moment, and so do you. Uh, earlier I spoke to you of George Whitfield. You know, George hoped that he would be able to bear a testimony of Christ in his final hour. He hoped that it would be kind of one of those moments where as he's dying, he could have this crowd of people around him and he could tell everybody that they need to, you know, uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ and maybe have a really big revival right there ushering him out of this life into the next. But it wasn't to be. He didn't have that opportunity the age of 55, he was continuing to preach even though he was actually rather sick. And he had a huge crowd in a field in a small town in Massachusetts. He was standing on a barrel proclaiming the gospel, preaching the word of God. After he got done preaching, he went to the parsonage in the nearby church uh, to bed for the night. And in the morning he died. He didn't have that opportunity as he so hoped to have to be able to bear witness to Jesus in the hour of his death. But in a sense, he did, didn't he? He did something even more than that because he lived a life of bearing testimony of Jesus Christ. And that was the pattern of his life. Regardless of the fact that he never had an opportunity to testify, there was no shame for him because he had devoted his life to preaching the Word. He had been ready to preach the Word in season and out of season, rebuking, reproving, and exhorting with all patience and teaching. And I am confident that when he stood before the Lord, he too received a crown of righteousness. And he also received a personal welcome from Jesus himself who said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You who have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And isn't that what you want to hear as well? I do too. Let's pray.